0: Coming up on In Session. We love prodigies. Like we love watching YouTube videos of like four year olds who are doing things that they make you feel like they're magical and that they're not like you and that they're they're gifted in a way that you weren't. I think the most important thing to understand is that it's a dangerous idea to get obsessed with that as an explanation for why people are great because the hidden I think are
1: thousands of hours of, of really effortful practice and dedication. In today's episode, we'll explore grit, a combination of passion and perseverance that our guest says is more important than natural talent in achieving goals and predicting success. Her research shows that though natural talent is fixed, grit can be developed and grit can lead to far better individual and organizational outcomes than a reliance on natural talent alone. We're talking today with Dr. Angela Duckworth, a 2013 MacArthur Fellow, and professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Duckworth is also the founder and CEO of Character Lab, a nonprofit whose mission is to advance the science and practice of character development. She completed an MSc in neuroscience at Oxford and a PhD in psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Duckworth has advised many organizations, including the World Bank, NBA and NFL teams, and Fortune 500 companies. And she's also the author of the best selling book we'll discuss today, Grit, the Power of Passion and Perseverance. Our host for today's episode is Michael Siegel, Senior Education Specialist at the Federal Judicial Center. Michael, take it away.
2: Thanks, Lori. Thanks for joining us today, Angela.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited
0: to
2: be here, Michael. So, what is grit and how is it different from resilience or stubbornness?
0: I'm a research psychologist who's been trying to understand, you know, what what do high achievers have in common? And uh, in my research, I have found that this combination of passion and perseverance for really long term goals uh, ends up being a a common denominator. You know, whether you're an Olympic athlete like Lindsey Vonn or uh, a Nobel Prize winning scientist like Marie Curie, there is this kind of tenacity of what you're working on and how consistently and hard you're working on it. I'm often asked like, okay, that sounds like resilience. Is it the same thing? And actually my doctoral advisor, when I was getting my PhD in psychology is a fellow named Marty Seligman, who is somebody who I think discovered 50 plus years ago, like what is resilience, you know, first in animals and then in people. Um, so, So what resilience is, at least the way Marty would talk about it, is that when you have a really stressful experience that is in part out of your control, do you select, Selectively think about the fact that you can't control it and that, you know, probably your life is ruined. Or do you focus on the part of the situation that you can learn from and that you can that you can control in the future? Um, and that's the foundation of resilience. And the and the opposite of resilience is a, he would call learned helplessness. And so you can think of those as, you know, two different reactions to the same situation. There is a connection between resilience and grit. And it's not just because I happen to have been in his lab. And And that is, I think that when you ask the question, like, what are these really gritty people doing that helps them or encourages them to stay with the same goal for decades and to work so hard, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and in many cases, Saturday and sometimes Sunday. I I think resilience is a part of grit. Um, If you don't have a resilient response to adversity, it's, it's hard to imagine how you could be gritty for years, but I don't think it's all of grit. I think there are other things too.
2: And you mentioned the diversity of environments. And you have found your research has found that grit exists in environments as diverse as the West Point Military Academy and the National Scripps Spelling Bee. How is grit manifested in these very diverse settings?
0: You know, my my intuition. Of course, I haven't studied all human settings, and nor will I. But my intuition is that. There are going to be examples of grit in every setting. That in any group of people, you're going to find uh, individuals who are uncommonly tenacious about, you know, what they care about and and how they're striving toward it. In particular, though, you're right. I've studied West Point and I've studied the National Spelling Bee, and I I took them in a way as. Paradigmatic settings where things are really hard, and you started off and you were really committed, but but are you are you still committed after things are are you know unfolding and sometimes not in your favor? So, for example, in the National Spelling Bee, you know most of those children, and they are children, their age is seven to fourteen. It's an unusual sport to be you know officially aged out when you're only like fifteen <laughs> years old, but uh, these kids typically will compete year after year, and you know as as we all could figure out like most of them will not be champions. And so they have to like come back again and go back the day after the national spelling bee and ask themselves, do I, do I want to keep studying words and then like come back again? And the year that I completed a study with Anders Ericsson, there was a winner named Carrie Close and it was her fifth year of competition, like thousands of hours accumulated over, over years. So I think it's, it's kind of obvious to study grit in a, a setting like that, but in, in all kinds of settings, because life is hard and, and, Achieving anything, I, I really believe, takes consistent effort.
2: We, we often have a preference, or we we respect natural talent more than we respect grit. Why is this misplaced, in your view?
0: You know, I've been wondering whether it's a uniquely American mythology of like the natural, right? And I've lately been convinced that it can't be just, you know, the United States that has this affection for somebody who is like a natural genius, like somebody, you know, we love prodigies, like we love watching YouTube videos of like four-year-olds who are doing things that they make you feel like they're magical and that they're not like you and that they're, they're, they're gifted in a way that you weren't. And, And therefore, as Friedrich Nietzsche, the 19th century German philosopher would have said, like, here, I do not have to compete. And I think that's the underlying psychology of the myth of genius is that when we set aside a Usain Bolt or a, like, name your favorite person who you think, like, I'll never be like that person you you don't have to compete you don't have to try to be like them because you you aren't gifted so i think this idea of natural talent is not entirely fallacious like there are i think abilities that you know vary among us depending on our dna you know some of us are born tall some of us like me are born very short like i don't you know have all the um, required elements for being a basketball player so there are abilities that differ in part because of our genes. But I think the most important thing to understand is that it's a dangerous idea to get obsessed with that as an explanation for why people are great, because the hidden, I think, are thousands of hours of, of really um, effortful practice and dedication.
2: So it, it's a matter of what you do with that natural talent, right? It's a matter of how you develop it.
0: I I would say as a mom, you know, I've got two still teenage girls. Uh, One of them is going to age out of her teenage years in a year. But I would say that as a mother, I try not to fill my conversations with my own children about where I think their gifts are, you know, what genes they seem to have inherited. It's not very useful. You know, I was a biology major by training, so I'm not saying that there aren't any biological and genetic differences but but is it a useful conversation to talk about that and and one of my affections for philosophy is that if you look in the writings of like a william james right at the turn of the 20th century and to paraphrase William James, is that in in his experience, there were so many people who were, as he put it, half awake, right, because they were nowhere near the ceiling of their potential. And so to constantly talk about limits and potential because of this seemingly finite genetic heritage or another seems like a misplaced kind of conversation.
2: So let's dig deeper into gritty people. They have four things in common in your research, Interest, practice, purpose, and hope. How do they develop these things and how can we develop these things?
0: Um, the earliest stage of the development of someone who uh, ends up in in adulthood being really dedicated to something um, uh, with with real grit is interest. And um, interests in people tend to emerge with some kind of definition anyway, um, around adolescence. And it's not to say that five-year- olds aren't interested in things. In fact, you know, it's hard to imagine anything that a five- year old is not interested in, but the kind of like, I'm interested in this, more that I'm interested in that ends up happening around the time we hit puberty. And um, that might be because that's also the developmental stage where we start to carve out our our eventual adult roles in society. So interest is very important. And if you ask me, you know, what would be true of somebody in adulthood, it's that they haven't lost that, that childlike interest. You know, for me, the first thing I did when I woke up after I went to the bathroom, drank some water and then got the coffee going was i you know took out some psychological research articles that i was saving for today and man i would just couldn't wait to dig in right i'm i'm so interested in psychology so that's the first stage then uh, the second stage developmentally is is typically having a, a routine of practice so, you know, really uh, dedicating yourself to something in a way that makes you better and better. Um, and there's a whole science of of practice. The third element is, you know, even later in life, and that often happens in adulthood or even middle adulthood. So um, not something that, you know, your typical 20 year old, you know, manifests. And that is purpose kind of beyond the self-orientation toward things that are beneficial to other people than you. And then I, I mentioned hope. I, I, I think that's my poetic way of talking about resilience, as Marty Seligman might put it, or um, Carol Dweck at Stanford has done pioneering work on growth mindset. And, and these ideas all have in common the idea of agency. So I think that at every life stage, you know, no matter how old you are, you're going to encounter situations that really threaten your sense of agency. And I think the idea that you can focus on what you can change, even if you're not ignoring the many things you can't change, ends up being elemental to this long-term commitment toward goals and, and effort towards them as well.
2: I want to go back to the idea of practice. And you talk about the concept of deliberate practice. What does that look like?
0: You know, um, it was this summer, actually, that um, the world lost Anders Ericsson, who was the scientist behind the idea of deliberate practice and his somewhat untimely death and certainly a shock to the scientific community is a, an occasion to kind of really honor what his contribution was. So Anders, um, we all joked with him, you know, was the world expert on world experts because that's what he did. He studied, you know, maestros uh, in music. He studied uh, prima ballerinas. He studied award-winning mathematicians. And what he found is that these world-class experts have in common a routine where they focus on a specific element to improve. And um, often Anders would talk about this as being usually a weakness. So it's something where relatively speak, I mean, if you're Usain Bolt, you're already pretty great, but but maybe your starts in a hundred meter dash are relative to the other things like weaker for you. So you, you drill on that and then some element of that, which I can't even make up because I'm not a, a, a sprinter. And then you really have a mental image of what it means to actually do that thing better. And then you try with a hundred percent of your effort and your attention It actually deliberate practice. Andres found to be uh, in his research exhausting. And most of the world-class performers he studied could not do more than four or five hours, even at the peak of their careers um, per day. And then what's really important. And I think a lesson for all of us, because as I, as I say these things, I mean, you're not Usain Bolt, but you can say like, Oh, could I identify some relative weakness in myself? Some element of what I do, be a better listener, you know, ask better questions, you know, keep a better calendar and make better eye contact, whatever it is. Can I drill on that? Can I really try with hundred percent focus to make this mental image of what it would be like if I could do it like happen? The key thing is the last step is to get feedback and then reflect on that feedback and repeat. And I don't know that there are many people in the world who are, you know, able to take feedback without being defensive. Uh, but I think the key is that you have to get over it. But then say, hmm, I'm not only going to rate myself in a, in my head about like how I did, uh, but also how I took the feedback. And I'm going to give myself a 10 out of 10 for taking the feedback openly. I and mean, that would be one way to like reframe feedback as itself like a challenge to to take.
2: Yeah, it ties into a concept from our last speaker of radical inquiry, you know, to really be honest about yourself and to hear the feedback and do something about it. For me, it would be my backhand in tennis, but uh, that's.
0: <laughs> Are you defensive about it? Uh, very. <laughs> yeah. Do you get over it? Are you? I get uh... over
2: it. I get over it. The next one uh, I want to focus a little bit more on is purpose, and purpose is, as you said, it's outward looking. Does this come with maturity?
0: You know, I I do think that a kind of outward looking um, what is my life all about? uh, Orientation does typically come for many of us actually in middle to late adulthood. And actually um, Erickson, the great psychologist suggested that there are different stages of life, but like towards the end of life that we would uh, enter what he called the generativity stage. And that was a feeling of like trying to give back. Like, you know, when people ask, like, what will my legacy be? Or like, but but what is the meaning of my work? You know, that's often the kind of question that somebody's in that stage might ask. I think whatever age you are, you can ask yourself, do I feel like my work actually makes somebody else's life better? And my guess is that if you can say yes, then you feel filled with purpose. And if you doubt that, then maybe there's some adjustments that are in order.
2: You mentioned earlier, Carol Dweck, because you connect the idea of hope to a growth mindset. And would you elaborate on that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I will. Um, I'll try to be a poor substitute for Carol Dweck. She's like literally my hero. I just would, if a if magic fairy said like, would you trade your life for half of Carol Dweck's life? I would say, yeah, totally. It's a good <laughs> deal. Um, so Carol Dweck studies the beliefs and she calls them mindsets, right? The beliefs that we carry around in ourselves. They're like little theories that we have about the way the world works, human nature, and uh, and how they influence our motivation and our behavior. And in particular, Carol's discovered in her scientific research research that our beliefs about intelligence are really important, that so many of us believe that intelligence is fixed and that you can't change it. And the opposite of that would be a growth mindset, really believing that abilities are malleable. And I, you know, have done a little bit of research, you know, as part of a team uh, with Carol, and I find that grit and growth mindset are are very reliably correlated. So if you if you walk around and you think like, oh, People can change. I can change. Whatever my abilities are today, I can get smarter. Um, uh, that it tends to be you know, characteristic of gritty individuals.
2: Our probation chiefs came up with the vision that people can change and we can make a difference. So I would say that's part of that.
0: We all have a kind of fixed mindset and, and growth mindset voice in our head. It's not that you're either one or the other. I was a school teacher. I taught math in um, high school and middle school. And, you know, at, a, at the end of a long day, when you're really frustrated with a particular class or a particular student, it is easy to retreat into like, well, I guess they just don't have the ability to change. Like, it's not like I can do anything about it. And, and we all have that voice and to not feel like there's anything wrong with you, but if you could amplify. Amplify and listen harder for the voice that says, like, maybe this kid can change, like maybe there is something, you know, they haven't yet tried that they haven't yet tried. And when I think of the best teachers, the ones that I really hold up as like, wow, you are like basically the Usain Bolt of AP economics teachers. Right. Like like they they that they all have that, you know, they're they're relentlessly optimistic about what their, um, what their charges, you know, whether it be students or, you know, athletes or, you know, whoever you're in charge of what they, what they'll be in the future.
2: So speaking of the voices in our head, your book describes, we have two voices, the inner pessimistic fixed voice and the inner optimistic growth voice, if you will, which could send mixed messages. And the question is, how can our court leaders be sure that they are projecting a growth mindset?
0: i'll just betray my um underlying motivation for uh, joining you in this conversation Um, well one is i knew it would be a really fun one and it has been and the other is that i think the work that you're you, you are collectively doing is so important. And so what you can do, I think, first and foremost, is think of yourself as being on a stage, right? It was Shakespeare who said that all the world's a stage and each of us is players, but some of us are really in the spotlight. And I think when you're in that position of authority, everybody is watching you and what you do becomes a model for everything else. I remember going to watch the Seattle Seahawks I'm friends with and I'm a big fan of Pete Carroll, who's the coach there. And it was interesting to follow him around for a day because, you know, the interviews are One thing. But if I could tell you how much respect he was able to communicate when we went to the lunchroom and he he grabbed his tray and he gave me mine, you know, first, of course, and he treated every single person there like the person serving him his, you know, chicken sandwich and you know, the like literally like the security guard, his Russell Wilson, like everybody the same right and and this you know modeling i think is the most important thing that a court leader could do if you want the people to have a growth mindset model growth mindset
2: is grit contagious <laughs>
0: I don't know, but much of human behavior is <laughs> so. Um, I haven't studied contagion and grit, but I will just say that there's a lot of research on contagion and other things. Uh, and I'll just say two things. One is emotions are contagious. So um, the work of a scientist like Sigal Barsaid at Wharton shows that, for example, the mood that you show up to uh, work with ends up being contagious. Just like, uh, just like you know, bad things are contagious. You know, uh, you know, good and bad moods can also be contagious. And Um, You could think about that a little bit Um, next time you show up for a Zoom call, you know, that, that that emotion, it's okay to have negative emotions. I think we should be honest about our feelings. But you could also think like, you know, if I can help myself become in a better mood, that might have ripple effects. And the other thing that's contagious is behavior. And this is especially relevant to the kind of work that, you know, your listeners are involved in because human beings are mimics, you know, not just for emotion, but for any behavior. So when people litter and other people see them litter, then they litter, right? It's like you see two people throw their soda can into the street and, Before you know it, like you're not waiting to find the next trash can either. And I think this is why we need to hold up as examples. You know, when you are a court leader, for example, you know, you want to hold up as like you want to create a social norm by like telling stories about like the three people that you recently encountered who had done X, Y or Z that you really admire because people will mimic that. And so you can kind of maybe tilt their attention towards the parts of society or the examples that we want other people to mimic.
2: So, you had a really fascinating experience when you interviewed with McKinsey and you showed some grit in doing that. Is there a way interviewers can can identify grit in people they're interviewing?
0: I think it's pretty hard to identify in a short interview what someone's going to do over the long term. Um, I think you can interview people and immediately tell whether they have charisma, whether they have a particular way with words. Um, I, I don't know that you can have a sense of, you know, after a really hard week, will this person come back on Monday morning ready to go? right? Like, you know, in 10 years, will this person still in some way have the same North Star? It's hard to know in a 45 minute interview. I I do think you can look maybe at their history, right? If somebody is the kind of person who tends to, you know, throw themselves into things for multiple years, like they played a sport for multiple years, they made some kind of progress, or if they've done community service, like, you know, it wasn't just one thing and then another thing, but like, there's some continuity, like, oh, I see this person's been doing volunteer work for multiple years. They've progressed, you know, there's a deepening of their expertise. I think I would put more stock in a careful review of what they've actually Actually done in their lives than how they perform in a short interview. In that interview, of course, you can ask them questions about what they've done, but I think asking them just sort of like, how do you think about failure? Or Like, you know, <laughs> I I personally have not had any success researching uh, ways to, you know, ask the magical interview question that gets at somebody's grit.
2: That's helpful. Thanks. You mentioned, uh, we talked about contagion and certainly we're in a period of uh, a pandemic. I can a different kind of contagion, and how can grit help us get through this period, or can it?
0: With grit and the pandemic, I will just first say this pandemic is terrible, and I I don't know anybody anybody who who, who would say that 2020 uh, isn't their most stressful, difficult year for all kinds of personal and and also some general reasons. So. I think that what I would say specifically about grit is that I think what helps a lot of us get through hard times is feeling like we are doing something that is useful, you know, and I think for us to hold on to that. Right. So if you're a teacher, it's like doubly hard this year. But holy smokes, you have such like a useful vocation and if you are a court leader or if you are some other part of the judicial system or if you are a mom or a dad I mean I think that is in a way um, so much more helpful than anything else we can do like the ultimate balm to wounds is to feel like you are useful to other people and and I've been trying to hold on to that and it's not that I don't grind my teeth I, I didn't sleep very well last night I'm very stressed I'm you know like a little crankier that but but I think like I'm a professor you know I have 80 students in my class on Wednesday. And I know that if I work really hard this week, I can be useful to them when I show up and um, do the best job I can in um, bringing them through another week.
2: Great. That's a great framework to use. Can we overdose on grit and lose the balance that we need in our lives?
0: You know, I am um, um, a big fan of David Chang, this um, star chef. Um, He just wrote this memoir called Eat a Peach, and I am halfway through it. And it's a very candid memoir. And I'm just at the part where he talks about how now that he has some perspective on his life, he realizes that work has been his addiction, that, you know, it was a way of him coping with Unhappiness and, um, and he's very candid, like coping with depression. I think there is a danger in the kind of single minded obsession that, uh, is sometimes, you know, how grit is described and how it might. Have negative impacts not only on you but like your children, right? Your your spouse, um, your the, you know, the suffering people who work for you. So I, I think we should think about character more broadly than grit. Um, Aristotle and also Martin Luther King and also Maria Montessori and ma- many other great thinkers said that character is is um, the aim of developing into the kind of person who is good for for other people. And so if you think about character. It can't just be grit, right? It has to be empathy and it has to be curiosity and it has to be patience and it has to be honesty. And anyway, if we, if we think about grit in perspective, then it it certainly can um, be dangerous if, if thought of as the only thing that you need to lead a good life.
2: Do you have anything else you want to tell our audience?
0: You know, one thing that surprised me about interviewing paragons of grit, you know, I just mentioned David Chang, there is nobody who's grittier than David Chang, right? And um, he describes himself as a, uh, when he was a young chef that he had like the least talent of anybody in his cooking school class, like his cooking partner um, threatened to quit if she had to (laughs) keep cooking with him because he was so bad. Um, And uh, he said, but I I did it like through grit, right? You know, so uh, one of the things I would say that surprised me when you interview people like David Chang is that they're not invincible and they're not perfect people. You know, they struggle, as David Chang writes about, with mental health problems. They they have like all sorts of challenges and imperfections, things that you wouldn't see on a YouTube highlight reel. And I guess my message for the people who are listening is if you feel like a, a deeply flawed, super imperfect, awkward, clumsy person, then you are just like the people I study. And what's so remarkable to me is that people are able to take all of their imperfection and all of their humanity and to do something with their life nevertheless. And to me, it was a revelation because I too thought these people were just like perfect. I mean, you watch a documentary on Netflix and you just, you think like, oh, okay, like, wow. Um, but 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 really these people are, are no less human than you or me. And I think that makes us I, gives me hope, right, that, that um, w- with, with the material we have, um, that we can do something useful with our lives.
2: That's so inspirational. Thank you so much, Angela.
0: Thank
1: you, Michael. I so enjoyed it, and I hope we get to talk again.
2: I do as well.
1: Thanks, Michael, and thanks to those who are listening. A reminder that Angela Duckworth's book is Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. To hear more episodes of In Session, visit the Executive Education page on fjc.dcn and click or tap podcast. You can also search for and subscribe to In Session on your mobile device. In Session, Leading the Judiciary is produced by Shelley Easter and directed and edited by Craig Bowden. Our program coordinator is Anna Glashkova. Special thanks to Chris Murray. I'm Lori Murphy. Thanks for listening. Until next time.